Hello and welcome to the London Scots podcast, where we talk to Scots who have made it to the big smoke. It's about where they've come from, why they're in London and what their life is like. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Shona Fleming. Shona, where did you come from and how did you end up in London? Uh, so I am originally from Glasgow, born in Glasgow. Um, but I realised the other day I've actually spent more time outside of Scotland um, than I have been in it. So born in Deniston and um, I went with my family. My dad got a job um, in South Africa um, and I went there when I was seven. So I spent most of my childhood in South Africa. Um, and I have to say, you know, it was for me as a kid growing up there, it was it was brilliant. It was me and my brother, four years younger. And when I think about it now, my parents were only in their late 20s when they did that. Um, and it was probably quite something um, in the sort of late 70s. Anyway, my dad was a heating engineer. We went there and had quite a nice life, to be honest with you came back when I was 16, um, which was weird. Um, it was not the easiest age um, to come back to start school again in Glasgow. Um, I had been in an all-girls school, and I came back to Glasgow and right into the thick of it, into a co-ed. Um, and... I think it's fair to say a lot of badly behaved kids in comparison to what I had been used to, a very strict um, environment in an all-girls school. So, yeah. Um, and then I stayed in Glasgow until I was probably about 31. And I've now been in London for 22 years. So you do the math. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought about it the other day and I thought, wow, I've spent more time outside of Glasgow. But it still feels like home to me when I go home. Well, quite. So just sorry, just I was looking a wee bit shiny there in the in, in my screen there. So I, All right. I, I adjusted my uh, uh, <laughs> uh, light, uh, my sophisticated uh, lighting deck that well, I have Well, let's not here. worry about you, Ed, as long as I look all right. <laughs> you look fine, absolutely. <laughs> so did you say you left at 31? Yep. From Glasgow. Glasgow. All right. Yep. So, um, so what was it then that brought you down to, uh, you came from Glasgow to London, did you? Yeah, yep. So my parents had moved to Glasgow probably, oh, sorry, moved to London um, probably about three years before I came to London, um, which is a bit unusual. I think it's yeah. maybe sometimes the other way about yeah, yeah. But my parents, I mean, maybe because when we were younger, there was no fear. They sort of moved around. Um, and then, you know, I thought I'd go and visit them. I went and visited them a couple of times and I thought, well, this is really lovely. Um, my dad was working for St. Columbus um, Church of Scotland um, as their caretaker. He'd, he was a heating engineer, but a arthritis, all the rest of it, couldn't do the job anymore. So they decided, oh, let's off-skate to London. Um, so I visited a couple of times and I thought, oh, yeah, this is this is really nice. Um, and at the time, um, I, so I was married, so it's my ex-husband at the time, and he got a job 
in London. And at that point, I was working for social services. Um, I was sort of middle management and doing okay for myself. And then all of a sudden, he got this job and we just decided, right, okay, um, let's go. Um, I had no children um, at the time, so it was quite easy. Parents were already there and ended up in London and visiting London to see family or friends or for the weekend, very different to arriving and you're going to be there. This is now your home. You don't know anybody. <laughs> um, you don't have a job. Um, and I thought, oh, this is a bit strange. I had wanted to take a bit of time off anyway. I'd been working in social services and I think it was the right time just to have a little sort of break and, you know, sort of get myself together again. And but I got bored really quickly, um, about five months in. I thought, right, that's it. I need to get back in to employment. Um, but the problem was, because I worked in social services, getting jobs back in um, in that field is not the easiest, actually. So I'd been sort of biding my time, and then I was, I was fed up. And I got the Guardian one Wednesday, and I was flicking through... And I saw this advert for the Royal Scottish Corporation. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting. Um, and they were advertising for various uh, roles. But interestingly, the only one that I could apply for, because they were looking for a degree qualified, and I had left school at 17 and gone straight to work. So I never had the bit of paper. Um, so they were also advertising for a helpline operator, which is a nice job and all the rest of it, but it was way, yeah. I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. It was way below where I yeah. should have been coming in at. Anyway, um, I applied for that and I got it. Um, thank God. I don't know what I would have thought if I, if I didn't get it. Um, I got it and very quickly I was done you know, beyond the job and they recognised that and that job that had needed the degree certificate, um, I got that. So that was quite fast, actually. That was just a, I was a couple of weeks in the door and I got promotion. Um, and what is the, the Royal Scottish Corporation or what was it? Yeah, so essentially, um, so we're known as Scots Care now um, because that, we feel that's a lot friendlier and, and it is what it is. Scots caring for other Scots. But the name before that <laughs> is the Royal Scottish Corporation. And again, that had been an attempt to sound a bit more modern from its original name, um, which goes back to 1611. And that is the Scottish Hospital of the Foundation of King Charles II. There you go. <laughs> so try and say that to somebody when you who do you work for. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we go way back to the Union of the Crowns. Um, James VI um, became James I of England and lots of Scots followed their king south. The sad thing at that time was that Scots were not entitled to parish poor relief. So when they fell on hard times or let's say the man of the family um, was ill, sick, 
whatever, um, essentially Scots were struggling really badly. Um, you had the plague and people were dying, um, families were starving, and these wealthy Scots merchants would get together in a tavern in Covent Garden and put money into a Scots box, a big wooden box, we've still got it, and essentially from that came the Scottish Hospital. Um, and so basically it was Scots looking after their own. That's essentially where it sure. came from. Um, it's all about, First Royal Charter was 1665, um, which is probably why we're called the Scottish Hospitality Foundation of King Charles II. And yeah, essentially they just looked after poor Scots in sure. London. And here we are um, over 400 years later, um, and we're still going strong. Okay, brilliant. So you came down and, and you worked, so you worked for the same organisation for a, a wee while with a different changed name. Is that right? Well, I mean, it's essentially the, the same organisation, yeah. And I, I mean, I came for six months. That's, mm. the, that's the funny, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had no intentions of staying here. Um, I was you know, I need to go back into social services. That's what I do. Um, and, you know, I got that early promotion. And then I was very lucky. I got another promotion a couple of years later. And so it went on. I became a manager, became operations manager. I became deputy chief exec. I became chief exec eight years ago. Um, so it's been, it's kept me interested, enthusiastic, still passionate about everything that we do. It's a very changed organisation. Um, so what I've been here nearly, I'm in my 21st year. Wow. Um, so from sort of gone for you know, a little job that will give me a wee bit of money every week <laughs> <laughs> to um, 21 years later. Um, and I've loved most of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, 21 years. You're allowed to have some bad days in 21 yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but exactly. it's quite unusual, though, for someone to stay with the same organisation for a length of time. Uh, it's obviously yeah. testament to, to testament to yourself and to the organisation yeah. uh, to keep you interested and, yeah. and uh, challenged in that time. And, yeah. and, um, uh, of course, poverty never goes away. Nope. And nope. hard times never go away either. Um, yeah. Uh, so there, there's always a need for the sorts of things you do. So um, that was, uh, was it quite difficult when you came down? I mean, you had your parents down here. You may have yeah. had some friends down here, but 31 mm. is it's quite a hard or can be quite a hard age for starting again sometime, somewhere, yeah. particularly in somewhere like London. Uh, yeah. You come down in your, your early 20s and stuff and people you're working with are probably the same age and you're going yeah. out after work and things like that. Yeah. 31 yeah. is a bit harder. So what, what did you do? Well, I mean, it was it was interesting um, because, you know, work was a massive part of my life because that became my social life as well, the people that I worked with. And, you know, there was a really lovely bunch of people um, that worked here. Um, we were all new because there had been a sort of new regime, if you like, and... Um, a lot of people had left, been made redundant, they changed the way the organisation was helping people and I was one of the first through the door. 
Um, there was one other person here, and bizarrely, he's still here. <laughs> so he just pips me at the post for being the longest <laughs> person here. And then uh, I think it's fair to say, at the time, a couple of years later, when I became a manager, and I think the first five people that I took on, um, I've still got four of them working with me. Um, it's a place where, not just me, it's a place where people come and we're, how could I put it, the the conditions are really good. We're looked after. We do, Our staff are looked after. I would hope as well as what our clients are looked after. So a lot of my, the staff retention here is, um, is pretty amazing. And I think that's because you've got the wherewithal and the, and the resources to be able to make the biggest impact for the people that you're working with. And I think that rings true for me. That's why I'm still here because the, the trustees, the board, um, my predecessor, chief exec allowed um, me to be creative, to innovate. We were, um, when I started, we were just, we gave grants to poor people, um, you know, a washing machine, carpets, whatever. And today we have got wraparound mental health services, advocacy, and each year's services are top notch. Um, I'm a bit biased, but I also have a background um, in mental health. I did go to uni um, later on, trained as a psychotherapist. So I know that what our offer is, um, is absolutely fantastic and life-changing for our mm -hmm. clients. We still do the grants. I mean, next weekend we're taking 630 to Winter Wonderland, um, our kids, all the kids that we help. Um, so it's an incredible organisation. It's a one-stop shop, if you like, for Scots and London. Um, and that's the reason I'm still here, yeah. um, because there is that, within reason. You know, things have got to be approved and agreed. And, yeah, yeah. You know, um, but this is an organisation that, that willingness to help the people that need our help um, is there every day in our work. And have you seen um, the conditions um, of people change or the reasons they're coming to? Has that changed over the years? I, I think um, poverty is poverty. Drug and alcohol addiction, mental health, it, it doesn't change. What changes is, as an organisation, you grow and you get better at understanding the needs of the clients that are coming to you. So just um, our clients, I would say, are 90% um, in receipt of state benefits. You're talking about, in some cases, and a lot of cases actually, you could be dealing with third generation unemployed, third generation low educational attainment. And so, what we offer is, what we're trying to do strategically is to end that cycle of deprivation so that the child that we help today will not come back to us as an adult. Hmm. So a lot of our services, again, strategically, is very children and families focused. And that we're just invest, invest, invest in these kids, whether it's clothing, 
playing the violin, football, all the social events, you know, activity grants. We do respite holidays for the family. It's just trying to give the kids an experience, different experiences the parents would never be able to afford. So our um, a lot of our 63% of our clients um, have a diagnosed mental health problem. Now, generally, that will be depression and anxiety, but it's diagnosed. Um, it's not, I'm feeling a bit low, you know. And the reason behind that, I would say, um, sort of anecdotally, is, is you live generation after generation in poverty, low educational attainment, no working, the next generation comes up. Is there any wonder that people have feel depressed and anxious um, and you know I wouldn't blame any one thing for that I think mm. of course it's um, on occasion it'll be about parenting poor parenting it might but it might be a parent with a mental health problem or a drug and alcohol problem that's them bringing up their own children and they're struggling there were successive governments um, in terms of policy um, removing funding from the very thing that people need. So you look at a mental health crisis right now. Goodness me. Yeah, you know you're you're going to wait 18 months to be seen. Um, now 18 months on top of how you're feeling today, it just beggars belief. Which is why we have got wraparound services and it's psychotherapy. It's not your six week, 12 week, 16 week um, little sessions just to pep you up a wee bit and keep you going. It's full on, like we, we deliver a year and then we can we can go beyond that. And the rationale behind that is, is you help the parent, you help the child. Then we added children's mental health services as well. Um, and our waiting times, I would say, are currently no longer than five to six weeks. Wow. Right in. Um, because we see it in front of us. We see it in our assessments. And, you know, when you're seeing a client, you can see the damage happening in front of you. Um, so what are you to do? You have to keep developing services. Sorry, I'm probably going way off track. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's, it's actually fascinating, and um, it's it's a slice of life, and and it's probably a slice of life that many of us, uh, thankfully, never come into contact with, um, and uh, don't know what's happening. So it's it's yeah. brilliant that we're talking to you today to yeah. uh, see how this happens. Now, it must be it, these are deep set, long set problems, as you're yeah. you're saying, and a, a comprehensive solution to that can only uh, can only really be the way out because everything else is really a sticking plaster, I yeah, guess. Exactly. From exactly. that, so um, exactly. How do um, how do you get money, and and what can people do uh, to help you? Well, it's it's an interesting one. Uh, so we are obviously based in London, and we cover the thirty-two boroughs of London and slightly beyond. So, thirty-five mile radius from Charing Cross in London. Um, now, being an organisation that looks after first, second and third generation Scots is not the easiest in terms of fundraising um, because we're seen as being very exclusive in terms of who we help. But it is what it is. That's what we're set up to do. 
Um, so it's it's difficult here in London to approach trusts, foundations, organisations because the first thing they say is, "Oh, you'll only help Scots and the children of Scots." Then in Scotland, we do get support from Scotland in terms of trusts and foundations, but that fundraising environment is so difficult now post-COVID that we do get some support, and it's. But they're in Scotland and therefore they're more likely to want to support charities that are in Scotland. Um, then we look at our individual donors and it will tend to be Scots in London that have done well for themselves that will say, right, OK, you know, giving a wee bit back, um, they'll know how tough life is in London, how much things cost. And so we have an individual donor given program, which is called the Saltire Donor Club. And that's where people do that monthly um, give. If you subscribe um, on our website to our newsletter, you will automatically get our newsletter. You'll hear about all the work that we're doing. And it's, and it's amazing work. I mean, it really is. Um, and but we need to grow that it's very small right now we only have a hundred people on that direct debit every month and it's getting the word out to say you know even a fiver a month just try and support us because it's difficult for us to raise money where we do get our money from is in 1665 we were gifted a small amount of money that was very carefully looked after by successive boards of trustees and investment managers and that's a permanent endowment so that is permanently invested um, we can't touch it so on our balance sheet it might look like we've got a lot of money but that's where we get our income so we get about 1.2 million um, from that per year We've got 96, uh, 97 sheltered housing flats. We have an income coming in from that. Let's say um, in a year, our income's probably about 2.7 million and I need 3.1. And we have, we've just started really moving into that territory of we're, we're predicting deficits now. So the fundraising is really, really important is um but it's difficult it's difficult and i wish you know see if i had a fiver for every scot that lived in london that could afford a fiver a month it would it would be incredible um and it's, it's just spreading the word it's just trying to raise our profile it's hard when you're only helping scots you know if we opened our doors to help everybody goodness me we'd run mm. out of money very mm. quickly um mm. But, but that's what it's set up to do. And if people can identify with that, um, I certainly do. I've been here for 21 years. Um, it would be, yeah, it, it would make things a lot easier. You see, the, the thing is, we went into development mode probably about 10 years ago. So your mental health services, your advocacy, mm. all these social events, volunteer program, it's a slow burn Mm. But every year we need more money and more money and you know things go, the cost of living impacts not only our clients it impacts us as a charity so everything is more expensive now 
Um, so you're you're not you're not really um, needing more money for the services. It's needing more money to keep what we've got going. And I am a really really strong believer in I will never develop a service for our clients if I don't think we can maintain it. Mm-hmm. These are some of the most damaged people um, that you'll ever come across. And obviously we, we look after homeless Scots in London as well. We merged with our sister charity Borderline um, just in April there. And, you know, homelessness, if you think about it, is the result of failure throughout somebody's life. Scots Care is trying to do the reverse so that we don't end up with that homeless person with all that trauma. Um, So, yeah, so it's it's a really, it's it's difficult. Um, I don't, as I was saying there, sorry, we we don't develop services and provide them to our clients unless we know that we can continue to Mm -hmm. do that. Because a lot Mm -hmm. of these people have had, you know, I don't want to pull the rug from underneath somebody, you mm. set them up with psychotherapy, all the rest of it, and then, sorry, we don't have enough money. So we're in it for the long haul. Mm. Um, but, yeah, we, we mm. need to fundraise. Well, I, I talk to uh, people on the street and, and uh, uh, just ask them various things, and yeah. a, a lot of them say uh, that they, they got there because of relationship failure, Yeah, uh, either between yeah. themselves and their parents or themselves yeah. and their partner, and, and yeah. they've been told to get out and, yep. and uh, uh, it's a terrible situation that they mm-hmm. find themselves in all of a sudden they have nowhere to go and very little, very few resources yeah yeah and and it's interesting and you know I, I often will stop as well um, and speak to somebody in fact I know a couple of people you know I just I, I see them all the time and for one reason or another they're not interested in coming in off the street but what you've you tend to have um, when you deal with somebody that's homeless, the age group predominantly is 35 to 45. Um, most of our homeless people, clients are male. Um, we've got about maybe 10% female, and that's that's on the rise. Um, and you might talk to a homeless person and they'll say, oh, my relationship broke down, and you'll be lucky, I think, if they tell you that it, that actually they're insightful enough to understand how they've been failed all mm. the way. Because when you get to a certain stage and you're rough sleeping and you've been rough sleeping for a long time, it's hard to join up the dots for a mm. lot of people. Yeah, They're absolutely knackered being out there on the street. You're talking about there will be, in most cases, you will have a mental health and a drug and sometimes mental health drugs and alcohol all combined. And there's a lot of unpacking there. There's a lot of care and love that's needed mm. to get somebody back, you know, onto the right path. And giving somebody a roof over their head, let me tell you, that's not the, that's not the solution. You need that. And you need, we reckon, about 18 months hand-holding Helping somebody maintain their tenancy, understand about their bills, how to look after themselves. So mm-hmm. just giving somebody a roof over their head, they just end up back on the street mm-hmm. because that's, in some cases, that's where their fam- family is, their street family. Yeah. 
um, yeah. what they're used to. And also what you've done is if somebody's gone through a rehab or therapy for a mental health problem, you've taken away all their crutches mm. and then you've left them on their own. Mm. So there's a lot, and that's the bit that's never funded. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks about get somebody in, and I'll tell you the hostels in London, um, you know, I don't want to, like, put down any any organization it's more the environment that hostels can create they can be mm. bit, quite frightening for people mm. um and that's why people stay out um mm-hmm. i mean we've currently got um the severe weather emergency protocol is in place right now and that's when the temperature hits zero um local authorities make other accommodation available and essentially it's everybody in just get everybody in because people die um, yeah. in that cold. I mean, you know you work in homelessness and um, client services when you're watching the weather every day. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're sitting at home thinking, God, you know, it's, it's minus two tonight. Oh. Um, who's outside? Um, it's, yeah, it's tough. I did um, see you sleep out just a week or so ago. Um, I had a, a couple of teams do it with me, and it was it was fantastic. It was our best result yet. We raised I think about thirty five thousand pounds, um, just for one night, and that's that's the beauty. So if anybody is listening, anybody wants to join me next year, twenty fifth of November, we'll be at Lord's Cricket Ground, um, and we'll be raising money, um, for Scots Care. It's for homelessness and, services generally, but for us, it'll be Scots Care. And can we still donate to that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I can send you. I've got a Just Giving page. I think if you go into Just Giving and you type in Shona Fleming, you'll see it. Okay. Um, so I do it every year, and every year it gets harder and harder to raise the money. Um, but also on our website, there's a big red button. You've just got to make it obvious. You've got to make it obvious. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've been away from uh, Scotland for a few years, as you were saying. Yeah. And um, has your view? And presumably, you'll go back at different times yeah. to see friends and family. Yeah. Um, has Scotland changed much in that time? Massively. <laughs> Massively. Um, what strikes you? I think um, there's been a to me anyway. You know and it looks like there's just been <clears throat> a ton of regeneration. I mean, the landscape sometimes is almost unrecognisable to me. If I'm on a taxi, I'll go along that expressway into Glasgow city centre um, and you see all these new buildings and, you know, at, when you're in Glasgow city centre, um, like just the number of restaurants that you can go to now, it just seems a lot more cosmopolitan actually um, than about 20 or so years ago. I mean, I was, I stayed in, um, I was there a couple of weeks ago and I stayed in the Glasgow Central Hotel. Um, I'd always wanted to stay there. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I've stayed in hotels in Glasgow, but mostly I stay with my mates because what's the point staying, you know, you set up leathering until midnight yeah. anyway and then you go back to a hotel so I stayed in the Glasgow Central and it was just um, it was lovely, it just the warmth of Glaswegian people yeah. um, there's just something I felt very, I was pining when I came home um, two weeks ago and I don't know if it's my age 
or whatever it is, but I felt quite bereft when I left um, the last time. And so much so I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, could, could we could we rent somewhere or, you know, just so that I would get a wee bolt hole um, in Scotland. But I did also notice that Glasgow City Centre doesn't seem to be as vibrant is what it was, mm. you know, like Sucky Hole Street. Mm. Goodness me. Mm. It's all like strange shops. Um, yeah. I was used to Littlewoods and Marks and Spencers and, you know, it was, yeah. quite, it was a lovely street. Um, and it seems as though there's been something's happening there. I don't, mm. I don't quite know what it is, um, but very, you know, you know, these like candy shops and yeah. Strange. Well, I mean, it's not just. I think it's high streets in many exactly. Uh, towns exactly. have gone like this. So that's changed. But you know, the being able to go to Glasgow and then drive for like four or five miles and you're in the middle of countryside is just huh. amazing. I mean, I lived in Milton Campsie before I moved to London. Although I'd lived in um, the West End as well, but that's that was beautiful. Um, so I went from you know the countryside right into. <laughs> Jibs and buses and you know yeah. just London life um, yeah. which I like both I think yeah. um, but I've been watching that program on TV as well uh, Shetland I don't know I don't know if you know it I know of it yeah I've yeah. seen it once yeah. and, and I think that's the other thing it's building up this ooh kind of you know wanting to be home and yeah it's ah. interesting it's um well it's it's uh, I mean Glasgow's great fun. It, it's I think it's friendlier city than Edinburgh. Uh, and uh, you <laughs> I always... have to say that, but my husband. Is uh, from I'm Edinburgh. from Edinburgh, <laughs> uh, but I, you know you get a, you get a good laugh. Well, I, I in Glasgow, which is where the idea for the Cayley Club came from, because we used to go to the uh, river at my student halls of residence was uh, on the corner of Clyde Street and Jamaica right. Street. Okay. Excellent. Another story about Jamaica and why so many things in Scotland are called after uh, West Indian. Uh, there you uh, go. West Indian uh, <laughs> countries. Um, uh, maybe that's for another podcast. But yep. I, I was down at a great talk actually by Sir Jeff Palmer uh, uh-huh. the other day, um, yep. uh, who's done so much to raise awareness in Scotland about his uh, shocking history uh, with the with slavery. Yep. Um, but. Um, but along the road from uh, us was the, the Riverside Club, and uh, that's really where I, the, the first thought of the Cayley Club came yep. from, was going uh-huh. to Cayley's there. Yeah. Um, but you always got a laugh in Glasgow, and you always got to talk to somebody, and uh, the vibrancy of it all uh, yeah. is just superb. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as I said, the warmth, it, and, and it's classic. And I think, is it because I'm in Glasgow? I talked to somebody on the bus at the bus yeah. stop. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you, you know, you can get somebody's life story um, yeah. and, and, and you give yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very freely. Um, so, no, I, I miss that. I love Glasgow. Yeah. Yeah, great stuff. Okay, so we come to that bit in the show where you have to either tell us a joke or tell us about an app that you find kind of indispensable. Oh, my God. Goodness, right? Jokes, <laughs> I cannot. Uh, and I'll tell you a story about that another time. It's not for it's not for this podcast. Um, apps. Oh, um, God, an app that I cannot do with that. Um, oh, that's a tricky one. Would I mean? I'm going to be really, really boring here. Um, it, it's probably being able to be 
to not always be in the office and be on my phone and be able to work and socialize at the same time is amazing. So there's there's multiple apps. Um, I, I do a lot. Of, you know, I do a lot of these word puzzle things. All right. Um, Wordle. Um, yeah, or various um, games and. They take my mind off everything. So I have yeah. to say it probably as a games right, thing. Okay. It clears my mind because sometimes the head's just going 100 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, and I tend to do that every day. It wakes me up. Um, yeah. So I've got a routine in the morning where I get up, I do all my emails, all the rest of it. So when I hit the office, I'm ready to go. My email box is um, it's not clear, but yeah. everything's done. Um, but when I'm on the train or the bus coming in, I'll instantly, it's almost like obsessive, and I've got to just like blur, clear my head between home and work, and then just like hit it again. Yeah, and I I find myself going into that and thinking, and I've just got to get through a puzzle or a crossword or or whatever. I think think it keeps my mind. Um, It wakes me up. uh, Brilliant. That's a great, that's great. Yeah. And uh, the modern version of the of the of the newspaper uh, crossword. Wow, wow, yeah. a fantastic thing! There must be a PhD. I'm sure there must be already written a PhD thesis on the benefits of um, crosswords. I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, absolutely. To uh, focus and, yep. uh, and and positive mental health. Yeah. Good, great. It's, well, it's a bit boring, but anyway. No, I think it's fantastic. We've never. I mean, uh, we ask this question. Some people tell us a joke. Most people give us an app, and we've yeah. never had um, Wordle or or uh, game app as being <laughs> our uh, as being the indispensable thing. Yeah. Great stuff. Good. Well, Shona, thank you very much for joining thank us you. today. Let's just remind everybody who's listening of the website which you can go to. Yep. So it's just www.scotscare.com. So S C O T. S-C-A-R-E. Okay, that's brilliant. And people can go in there and they can donate. They can donate a fiver a month or something like that. Would, yeah, uh, would be really amazing. Or even just subscribe to or our sub- newsletter. Subscribe just to the newsletter. figure out what we're doing and then decide if you want to support that. Yeah, That's brilliant. Lovely. Well, thank you very much. It's thank been you. an utter joy and a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks for all the great work that you do. Thank and you. Uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you soon. Two tickets to the Cayley Club uh, are yours. Uh, anytime Excellent. you want to use them, just drop Lovely. us a line. So thank you for doing this. Amazing. And uh, have a great day. You too. Thanks very much, Ed. Cheers. Thanks now. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the London Scots podcast. The wonderful music was provided by License to Cayley. And if you're looking for a great night out in London, then head over to the Cayley Club for three hours of dancing to a live band and collar. No experience necessary. Thanks again and lang may your lumber.